before we get into the future of construction and how we're going to be building our first city on our new world, what are we going to be building it from? In our last side chat, we talked about using genomic technologies to engineer biological structures. You plant a seed and it grows into a factory, literally. But while this is theoretically possible, it's probably quite a while away. So in this episode, we're taking a look at new materials and new ways of producing those materials that already exist. First up, we don't have to reimagine everything. Why don't we start by taking a look around at everything we already have in nature? Spider Silk's got this whole history with everything from comic books to folklore about how strong the material is. Everyone's wanted to harness it for a very long time. Dan Widmeyer is the founder and CEO of Bolt Threads. They make materials from nature that are high performance but hard to extract and develop technology that makes the scaling up and production of these materials possible. So what all that means is techniques for making stuff like spider silk affordable to the average consumer. Dan and I talked about his work at Bolt Threads, but also quite a bit about the broader idea here. Before we go reinventing the world, let's make sure we take a careful look at what already exists and develop new technologies capable of making the most of the natural world. But spiders eat each other when you try and farm them. So we essentially invented a process to do this same exact material, but made in a scalable man-made process. So have people never been able to really harvest enough spider silk to create fabric before this? There's less than five examples out there in the world that I can think of, and they involve multi-year, multi-million dollar campaigns to harvest enough spiders to do what you call forced silking. I can show you this in the lab one day if you want. Uh, you knock it out with a little bit of CO2, you touch a glass rod or a metal rod to the spinneret, and you can kind of, with a power drill or something, reel up silk fiber. You get you know, 10 or 20 milligrams at a time, then you got to go find another spider. And so it's, uh, it's and doable, it, but painful. So what they're making small little things with the spider silk at that point, they're making like... There's a tapestry in the V&A in London. It's gorgeous. It was about a million and a half spiders over four years in Madagascar. It's about seven feet by four feet, weighs about a kilogram. Totally not viable, scalable process, but it proves that the material spiders make can be made into textiles. So let's, yeah, let's talk a little bit about your insights here into how you could mass produce this mm -hmm. without the spiders. Sure. H how do you remove the spiders from the spider yeah. silk equation? At the, at the end of the day, you've had three and a half billion years on planet earth of life spreading in every niche of the environment, no matter how extreme. And to survive in those extremes, oftentimes organisms will evolve a material that allows them to solve a problem. Spider silk's one example. The adhesives that barnacles use to attach themselves to a ship is another example. It's made of a protein. You think about the rubbers that insects use to store energy when they're flapping their wings. That's a protein-based material. And it each has a kind of a performance niche that evolution adapted into to allow the organism to survive and thrive in that environment. Well, proteins are pretty ubiquitous source of macromolecules in biology. Your human genome has about 40,000 genes coding for different proteins that carry all the different functions that make you you. So what we can do is take single cell organisms like brewer's yeast and have them produce the protein of interest, the spider silk, the glue, whatever it is, and then make that a scalable process. Wait, when you say you can take a brewer's yeast and make mm -hmm. it produce spider silk, you mean, are you using genetic engineering to do this or? Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. So, so you take the genetics from the spider that has the information that tells the spider how to make the spider silk and you port that information over into an organism that we understand how to grow at mass scale. I mean, how does that whole well, process, all, all I have yeast, no idea yeast, how this works. All yeast come from old yeast, right? So like every four hours they divide and you get two and you trace this lineage back. There's a primordial yeast somewhere. That's the great, the great, 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 great grandparent. The yes. The, east the, Eve. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeast Eve. You take 
a current strain of yeast that we have in a in a freezer here. We grow it up. We will add the DNA from the spider with a few changes to make it work. Well, how do you add DNA to it? A couple of different ways, but generally you take some of the DNA that you've made from the spider. Oftentimes we don't have spiders involved in it. We use just information. Biology has become almost an information science in that we can sequence data, A's, T's, D's, and G's that encode the, the DNA. And then we can chemically synthesize it. So we actually send the order off to a company and they'll mail order us a little vial of powder that is the DNA sequence we specified. And so we'll use that mix it up in some water with those yeast, shock them with a little electricity. It makes the DNA go through the cell wall. And at some low rate, it incorporates into the genome and we can test that and then select for it. Oh, and so cool. now you have a yeast that has the instructions to make spider silk in the yeast. And let me go through a whole validation just, process. Are yeast just, I hate to get caught up on the yeast right you now, go but for it. <laughs> are yeast, are they just much more simple organisms than that seems like more difficult. You couldn't do that with a rat, for example, right? You can, but it's really a different process. Mm -hmm. And the thing about yeast that's nice, for the last, what, 4,000 years, we've been brewing beer, wine, making cheese, doing things like that at large scale. Yeast works in scalable commercial processes. You can, you know, you look about, uh, go by a brewery sometime. They grow massive tanks of these yeast to make the beer, or make the wine. So you take these yeast, you add this information uh, in a powdered form. Yep. These instructions for the yeast. Yep. You shock them, they become spider silk factories. Pretty much. <laughs> That's the, that's the high level. <laughs> There's a million details that make it more complicated, but that's the high level. The beauty of biology of some manufacturing technology is that given the right conditions, the yeast will duplicate themselves every four hours. So you get exponential growth. So you can start with a single cell, and if you let it grow long enough, it will become metric tons of cells. And so that becomes the cool thing. It self-repairs, it self-heals, it, it reproduces the, the factory itself. Awesome. That's Which actually works for your for our Mars city pretty well, because now you take one yeast with you that has the instructions that if you find the necessary ingredients, you can grow as much as you need to make the material you want. Yeah, I mean, I have a packet of yeast in my cabinet right now. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, like the size of, of a license, mm -hmm. and it fits in my pocket, and that would be enough to power a, a city. Yeah. When we go through our labs, we have cryogenic freezers, minus 80 degrees Celsius. Because at that temperature, the yeast can't divide and they stay kind of stable for practically infinite amounts of time. When we grow up a large multi-hundred thousand liter fermenter, we take a single vial, about a milliliter of water, media, and yeast in there. And we'll dump it into ever-increasing vial sizes to grow it up until it's at several hundred thousand liters. Awesome. Let's move this now, I think, to the question of... What is perfect material science? Sure. What is the, not just the future of material science, but what is the future of material science as it applies to specifically the question of Mars in this case? But I think more broadly, the question is just, if you could start over, what would you build? What is the world of material science as it stands right now? What does it look like today? What's the kind of materials infrastructure? How is the stuff that we build stuff with made? And then how are we going to improve on this? Not even improve on this. How are we just going to start completely over? Because that's what we have to do. So the interesting thing, the thing I'm always fascinated about with materials is that when you look around at global infrastructure and society over the whole span of human civilization, the palette we have to work with, the bounding box of what we can be is gated by the materials we have access to. Whether that's having access to a stick off the ground, but not lumber, if it's a stone versus a piece of iron versus a piece of steel versus carbon fiber. Christina said something really interesting. She said every age of man is named with a material. It's yeah. the stone age or the information. 
is sort semi, of, I mean, you just talked about information. The semi, as, well, the semiconductor relies upon highly pure silicone materials and being able to dope to get the right band gap. Like what we can do is gated by the materials we have access to. I mean, the fuel efficient airplane or electric car of today only works because you have access to carbon fiber to lighten the weight to make it work or the, the, the right strong rare earth magnets to make the motors work or whatever it is like materials drive everything even though we don't think about it in our day-to-day -day lives anymore and that's still the case it's just that the way we've done material science for the last almost forever has largely been dominated by you look at the world around you and you say there's a problem and now i look at the materials i have and i try and figure out what's possible given physics chemistry and engineering like those are kind of your bounds as you do a lot of experimentation you try to figure out what's possible when you figure out something's possible you try and find an application for it the big shift we go through when we think about biology as a source of new materials and as a manufacturing process, I think the whole paradigm changes. I think you look at three and a half billion years of evolution and that tells you what's possible. So like the spider silk, no one would have dreamed up this wacky idea if it weren't for a bunch of these invertebrates with almost no central nervous system making this high performance fiber better than anything we can make from a barrel of oil over the last hundred years. <laughs> We're endlessly frustrated as scientists at this company where we go out and we see spiders and they're just effortlessly making this awesome silk. And we're like, we spent seven years and we still feel like we suck at it, even though we're the best in the world. Biology showed what's possible. We're never chasing like something that we know or even suspect could be impossible because you know biology's already solved the problem. It can be done. And that's a totally different way to think about materials development, right? You don't have to go figure out what's possible. The world tells you what's possible. Now we figure out how to make it work. In the past, when people have done experiments with material science, you're kind of pushing the boundaries a little further every day and seeing what's possible, right? You didn't know that adding the right transition metal dopant to a silicon was going to make a band gap material on a semiconductor. Eventually, you figure out that was the trend and you start playing with different things and then you chase it down. But it's a lot of like essentially guess and check in material science. You kind of guess some things, you see what it does, and then you go, hey, that's interesting. We should do more of it. Here, what I'm proposing is that we go look around the world and evolution has already done the guess and check work for us, we get to see what's possible. And when you find something, you no longer have any danger that it is completely impossible to achieve, right? When you look at some other fields that you've probably talked to folks about, whether it's fusion or quantum computers or strong AI or things like that, there's often a very legitimate risk that it's just impossible. <laughs> like it just can't be done. Now, as an optimist, I don't believe that, but, but you know, Possible. No, it's true. And people forget that in the 1950s, people took psychical research really seriously. The idea that you could potentially read each other's minds. Scientists took this seriously. It was, a, it was a legitimate field of research. It just isn't anymore. You know, I'm also an optimist and I think that everything is possible, but I don't know, may, maybe short term. But proof does a lot for people. I mean, look at companies, right? When everything's impossible and one company proves it's possible, all of a sudden it seems like everybody else figures out how to do it. Just knowing it's possible has a massive impact on research and development. There's something just incredible there. This is a traditional adage that you tell as a PhD student is that you go and you look back at your PhD at the end when you graduate and it took you like five years. It was hellish. You look back and you're like, wait, in five weeks I could redo all that research. Because you now know it's possible and you have all that information <laughs> right. to your advantage. And someone else can look at it and go, oh, someone was able to figure this out. That means a human using logic could probably come up with the right answer. That just constrains the bounding box tremendously from infinity to something small. You're taking cues from, from nature. Yeah. You're you know on the path to building what nature can build. I mean, we're, and we're seeing this also applied to things like meat production, for example, or vegan cheese that's yeah. made like cow cheese. So what next? Let's take it to Mars, actually. What are we going to be building with? I think you're going to be building materials that fit the need of the design 
more than making the design fit the need of the material. So you take the way we build buildings out of steel and concrete today. You do it that way because you have certain inherent limitations in the materials we can mass produce and use for construction. And you design buildings around the, the physics and chemistry that work there. What if you could have the other side work for you as well? What if you could quite easily tune the characteristics of the materials, the strength of the concrete, the strength of the steel framing members? What if you could make them more flexible for things when there's a big windstorm than you do now? Now you think big anchors and you try to hold everything very rigid and keep it from moving. What if you could let it sway like a tree in the breeze or something like that and, and bleed off energy that way? So now you have access to really think about materials in a very different way when you're adapting to an environment where nothing has existed before. And as humans, normally you build things that look like bunkers, I think, anywhere new, right? Like right. Low squat <laughs> buildings that are dug into the ground. Like, ah, nothing's going to go wrong there. But if you can really know that you can adapt the materials quite a bit, you start really letting the imagination run wild on the design side. Yeah, you have this blank slate. You have different physical constraints, right? So you have different materials that you have access to in abundance. For example, iron oxide everywhere. Yep. Let's say that we've thought up some novel new architectural designs. What about the actual industry of materials? Take me from that little packet of yeast that you put in your pocket and, and get on a rocket ship and bring to the planet and just build me up a, a new materials industry from there. So to go with that, you need the way to control the conditions that those yeast are grown in. And you don't, you're not only limited to yeast, you can use photosynthetic organisms like algae, you can use bacteria like E. coli. You've got a, a range of different organisms that call, all fit in that same schema of have a small packet with you and it grows into a lot when you get there. But you have to hold the conditions right for them to grow. And so now you're talking about some sort of way of doing fermentation and some way to feed them. You either need CO2 and sunlight for photosynthesis or some sort of sugar or biomass for, for things like yeast to eat. So on site, you're going to be sitting there using materials you either farm or grow on site to create the biomass that you feed to the yeast, or you're going to have somewhere that you have sunlight hitting the surface of the planet and CO2 that you're producing probably from the humans breathing it out. So now you have the ability to do what we do on Earth, right, where plants play plants and uh, uh, cyanobacteria and other photosynthetic organisms play a key role in our ecosystem where they consume carbon dioxide and sunlight, turn it into sugar and oxygen. And so you're going to have opportunities, whether it's directly through something like an algae that makes your material or something like a yeast where you have plants that consume the CO2 and sunlight and turn out sugar and oxygen that you can then feed to your yeast to make the materials you want to build your city. What are the other kinds of things that you're going to be building from yeast? Uh, what, what are some other kinds of things that you could potentially do? Just take me on a kind of wild oh, journey. Sure. Through that. I mean, so there are four functional for living organisms. There's four classes of macromolecules. So you're made of four big buckets of things. Nucleic acids are your DNA and RNA that codes information. It's just a programming language, essentially, for life. You've got your carbohydrates. These are usually fuel and energy sources, sugars, starches, what I call biomass. They call it cellulosic materials that form the structures most plants grow out of. Your lipids and fats, these are greasy molecules that cause barriers in water. So it allows cells to make membranes that make the inside versus the outside of the cell. And then you've got proteins and proteins are the most diverse class. It's a polymeric class of macromolecules. In every position in a protein, you have 20 amino acids to choose from. And so you get this 20 to the N diversity and a typical protein is, call it 200 to 2000 amino acids. And 20 to the 2000 is a massive number. Like just ridiculously massive. So you have this huge search space with a lot of chemical diversity. And so over time... And that's that, that number, 20 to the 2,000th power, that represents all of the different things that you can build. That's all the combinatorial 
ways you could assemble the amino acids to make a 2,000 amino acid long protein. Give you an idea, the biggest protein in your genome has, oh, I want to say it's 5,000, order 5,000 amino acids. I mean, it's just huge. The search space is massive. I mean, there's only 10 to the 90 atoms in the known universe. So like, you're not searching the whole thing. So proteins provide this hugely diverse search space. So when on Earth, and it provides the functional bits. So the proteins in your body do everything from break down sugar when you eat stuff to making the structural elements of your tendons and ligaments through to replicating your DNA, right? The information. And they all carry on these different functional attributes in your, in your body and, and for all organisms on the planet. And so the range of types of materials you can make is pretty stunning, especially when you consider that things evolve on Earth to solve a function for themselves. As humans, we can start putting things together that have never naturally happened before. So to give you an example, in soil, bacteria are constantly fighting their nearest neighbors for resources and survival. And so they evolve little proteins that kill their neighbors, antibacterials, and these are pretty cool as therapeutics. But what if you start taking those antibacterial elements and adding them to the fiber forming elements of a spider silk and make a natural fiber that fights off any kind of infectious elements that it comes in contact with and kills them. That's like low hanging, easiest of the easy fruit. Now just start looking around nature at three and a half billion years evolution and untold numbers of organisms on this planet with tens of thousands of proteins each in their genome and start putting them together in all sorts of fun different ways and find functionalities that are subcomponents of evolved functionalities. I mean, you, everything from adhesives to elastomers to high strength fibers to uh, very hard solids. We basically go around like something on the Discovery Channel where you do an expedition in nature and look for really cool, weird stuff. And where you find cool, weird stuff in nature, there's probably a material story underlying it. And that should be inspiration for how to do something amazing. And then you take that back and really the game is how do you understand it? And then how do you translate it into a scalable system like our yeast that allows you to do this at mass scale and bring it to a product, right? And whether that's a product here on Earth or a product in Mars, as long as you have the infrastructure to grow a scalable organism like the yeast, you can make it anywhere. This is kind of a little bit off topic. I'm wondering just how it seems really hard to do anything in our civilization. The rules of our civilization make it difficult to build new things, I think. A friend of mine is working on a food truck. Yeah. And in San Francisco, there's something like 200 different steps, all these different things that you have to get approved, like different entities within the government, multiple entities that need to sign something or check a box or whatever. And it's just takes thousands and thousands of dollars. And at the end of the day, you have a food truck. Yeah. It's like not even like you've changed the world in some way. You're maybe happier, but like it's just really hard. And I'm wondering something like bio, it seems like bio is really far more so than just computer software. Bio seems hard. Um, it's very hard. How do you navigate that? What, 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 how did you start? And then how did you like, just take, take me through that process. So I'm trained as a chemist and chemical biologist, but spent about 10 to 12 years as a practicing molecular biologist. We were working on the, the precursor to the spider silk technology as graduate students. When we wanted to start the company, part of it was a pretty rigorous analysis of exactly that. Biology, it's, it's an awesome technology. It's probably the most powerful, most scalable technology on the planet. Every corner of the globe has biology living in it, but we're still in the infancy of learning to use it as engineering or manufacturing medium. And when you're in the infancy of a new technology, it's going to be slow. It's going to be painful technology. Even when you have proof that it works, it's still going to be hard and take a long time. And so we tried to find a way to craft a strategy that hedged against timeline risk. And so in particular, finding areas, so the typical area you biologists go into is healthcare, right? hugely regulated. You want to make a new drug? Great. And for a lot of good reasons, we want to make sure that it's very, very safe before we put it in humans. 
if you have a wide angle view of what biology can do beyond just healthcare, maybe that's not the best place to start because of those risks and the timeline it takes. Uh, so find other places to go. Partially how we, if you follow the trail for us, we end up in a consumer apparel. Consumer apparel has almost no burden on that side. And there's not none, but there's, it's light, it's lighter. And it allows us to kind of take the heavy lifting of doing something new, manufacturing biology, and bring that part to maturity before you start biting off too many problems at once. Because in my analysis, companies get themselves in real trouble when they can see the future and they're right, but they try to do it too fast and do too many things at once. And for biology in particular, where it's a lot of chemistry, a lot of biology, a lot of engineering, and a lot of trial and error learning at research scale on how to build the systems and how to build the organisms, how to transfer the information from the spider to the yeast. You want to hedge that as much as you can. And so for us, we start with something that's a ubiquitous product. Everybody wears clothes. We all have spent thousands upon thousands of dollars on clothes. If I go dredge through your closet at list price, it's, it's not good. <laughs> uh, but it's good or not good, depending on who, whose perspective you're looking at it from. But, you know, we as humans love to tell the story of who we are through our outward appearance, and clothes play a big part of that. There are some regulatory burden, but not a lot. And there's also been a lack of innovation there for a long time. And for a product like spider silk that already makes a fiber that's used in apparel, it's a pretty sweet spot to start. Totally atypical for what you see around Silicon Valley, though. In what way? How do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, most of the time when you have a big, robust new technology, the expectation is you're going to deploy it in some very, at first blush, high-tech application. Are you going to use this to make high-strength bulletproof vests or electric cars or new medical materials or things like that? Which you can. It's just you add another couple layers of risk on top of that, whether it's regulatory, performance and quality, timeline, all the other applications you want to go after amplify the timeline risk, in my opinion. But if you start somewhere where you're allowed to innovate, yeah, then you can move on from there. Where you're encouraged to innovate, right? Apparel is a market where, and consumer products generally, like the fiber, the things made with fibers, apparel, footwear, accessories that touch your body, are a place where innovating on design and use of materials is not only encouraged, but richly rewarded in the marketplace when you do it right. And no one's been able to do it right for a very long time. And now when you have access to a whole new paradigm of material science, here's a multi-trillion dollar global market that you can go and play in and learn what works and what doesn't. Be encouraged to do it and build a big, strong cash flow generating business that allows you to then bite off some of the other questions you want to answer. It's enabling what's proven possible rather than doing science to determine what's possible. Nature tells us the way, gives us the blueprint, and we figure out how to make it reality rather than trying to figure out if there's a blueprint. The conversation on material science continues in our next episode with Christina Lamazny. We're going to talk about metal. From Founders Fund, I'm Mike Solana, and this is Anatomy of Next.